Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello, Sabriel. Hello, Ken. We are ready to battle at the Binary Stars. Oh my god, so much happened in the first 12 minutes of this episode. It took an entire page of notes for me. Oh my goodness, so this is the second episode ever of Star Trek Discovery that we're reviewing. It is part two to the pilot, if you can call it that, because I don't think they're doing parters. They're just doing one long arc, kind of like Battlestar Galactica or a lot of other shows do nowadays. Yes, yes. So this is the first episode that was available exclusively on CBS All Access. You and I signed up. And viewers or listeners can sign up using our access code. Yes, at transporterlock.com slash CBS. And wow, so last time we pretty much walked through the episode, The Vulcan Hello. Not that we called it that, but that is the name of the first episode, the pilot. And now we're ready to continue our adventure through the world of Star Trek Discovery with Battle at the Binary Stars. So we open up the very beginning with the Klingon ships arriving from out of warp, one for each of the 24 houses. Yeah, that's a powerful moment to see 24 on, or 25. What was the, I don't think the, uh, Initial ship counted. I think you're right. So it's at least one per house. And they all happen to arrive at exactly the same moment. Yeah, that was impeccable. It's like they're waiting outside the system. (laughs) TV timing. But yeah, it was an amazing opening shot. It it recapped the last 30 seconds of the the previous episode. Mm -hmm. Remind me, so I've only seen this episode once so far. You've seen it twice. Do they immediately go into battle or is there some standoff for a while? There is a moment on the Klingon ship... Or it's a long moment where they basically talk about the beacon of Kalis, which is the the uh, artifact. They have this little dialogue about bringing the houses together. The houses of Dagor and Mokai and others are not named. That's right, because uh, Takuvma, the main Klingon, he is sort of an outcast. He walks us through his childhood about how he found this old ship that his father had abandoned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which it almost seems like it was, I'm wondering if it was some kind of prophecy ship similar to the Kuvama Delta Quadrant Klingons. Oh, right. The ones that found Tom Paris and Blana Torres. Yes. Maybe not, not the same people, but I wonder if it was some, something along those lines. It's possible. It reminded me a little bit about the Star Trek Beyond spaceship that crash landed and just got forgotten about until Kirk and his party found it and rebuilt it and suddenly it works. Yeah. I don't know. There, there were quite a few flashbacks here. We learned not only about our main antagonist for this episode, Takuvma, the Klingon, but we also learned more about Michael Burnham and her childhood. Yes, yes. She was, um, well, we saw her, more scenes of her in the learning center, however, or the, what do they call it? Oh, it was called learning center. However, she was also in a second Klingon terror attack. That's right. Was it Klingon? Did they say that? Pretty sure. Now you're question, making me question it, but yeah, I think it was. I think the flashbacks made her made it look like that. Because why would the Klingons engage in a terrorist attack on the Vulcan homeworld in Michael Burnham's lifetime? We don't know that it was on the Vulcan homeworld. But isn't that where Sarek called home? Well, yeah, but it's space, and Sarek travels a lot. He's an ambassador. That's true. I guess I just sort of assumed, but I don't know. It, it just seems strange that we have 
Now, they want us to believe on one hand that we haven't heard from the Klingons in a hundred years, and on the other hand, they attacked Michael Burnham's family and killed her parents, and then attacked where she was going to school a few years later. This That seems like a lot of Klingon presence, especially in one person's lifetime. I mean, they keep yeah. attacking her personally. It's almost like it is a grudge. Uh-huh. And that um, totally gets developed later. That is an interesting, interesting uh, thing we find out about her. Uh, we can talk about that as we talk about the episode. Okay. So remind me what happens next. So the, the Takuma tries to convince the 24 houses to join him in battle, that what they need is a unifying enemy to bring the houses together. I, I was not aware that the houses being disunified was a bad thing that needed to be resolved. I mean, are, are we aware of some internal strife that Takuma is trying to resolve? That is all off camera. We don't know much about that. In Enterprise, there was talk about the taking over, the warrior castes were taking over. And maybe to see what happened after that, because there's a Klingon lawyer that helps Jonathan Archer, and he discusses how things are, there's trouble in the Klingon Empire, that the warrior castes are becoming popular, because it's all about honor and fighting and victory and glory, and they're forgetting about the sciences and justice and things like that. That was an episode of Enterprise where the Klingon was played by J.G. Hertzler, who played Martok yes. on Deep Space Nine. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I love that episode, especially because Scott Bakula and J.G. Hertzler were in an episode of Quantum Leap together as well. <laughs> yes, they were. He was an old uh, Southern the father, uh, think of a debutante, if I recall correctly. No, that is absolutely correct. I, yes. And I believe he had a very memorable line about, ah, you have no honor. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's almost as if he saw his future being typecast as he's... <laughs> so there are a little few bits of interesting lore bits that also happens in this intro. The house of Degore is mentioned. Yes. And Degore was the name of someone in the T-Space 9 episode, the house of Quark. Oh. There's a character named Degore. Who claims to be someone's brother? He's the one who I think um, did not agree that Quark should be uh, there, on the, represented on the Klingon homeworld by marrying uh, what's her face. Anyway, I think he's the antagonist for the episode, if I recall correctly. In Space Nine. Yeah. So we know that even like a hundred and twenty years later or so, these houses still stand. Yes. Okay, so there is some good continuity there. Yeah, and it was mentioned in the Battle of the Binary Stars that. The Klingons have been rather complacent since the battle at Donatu 5. Yes, I picked up on that. Donatu 5 is a planet in the same solar system as Sherman's planet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And Sherman's planet, of course, was where we had the classic episode, The Trouble with Tribbles, 10 years after Discovery on the original series. Mm-hmm. However, that episode has not occurred yet, which means that there is a history to Donatu 5 well before The Trouble with Tribbles, something that happened sometime, I guess, I'm guessing a hundred years earlier in some sort of conflict with the humans. It might, yeah, it must have been during the Enterprise era or somewhere around there, but we are not privy to that. Right. And looking at, now that I've pulled up to Nato 5 after I mentioned it here, it was brought up in Deep Space Nine and TNG a couple times. Yeah, so it was mentioned in TNG in the remastered version because they had to go back and redo a lot of the computer interfaces and the overlays. And so they just added that as like a ah. line item in one of some of the data okay. there. Okay. Uh, but yes, it was also briefly mentioned in DS9 episode Sons and Daughters, where the Jem Hadar were attacking Klingon cargo vessels. I am ashamed I didn't realize I did not catch that when I watched Deep Space Nine last summer. 
the shame of my house. I brought it upon my house for not catching that little tiny nod. But there are so many small references throughout Star Trek, you can't keep track of them all. Yeah, yeah. And besides, Sons and Daughters is the episode of DS9 that reintroduces us to Worf's son, Alexander. Oh, yeah. So that is certainly a much more of a focal point than the specific (laughs) name of a planet they happen to be going to. True, true, true. As I mentioned last episode, we talked about a little bit, uh, the Klingons are fearing that the Federation wants to bring them into the fold, into the Federation. And there was a great line. It says, he want, Tukuvma, Tukuvma says, they want to bring us into the muck where the humans, Vulcans, Tellarites, and Andorians mix. Which is exactly the original composition of the Federation that Archer put together back in Enterprise. Yes, and he sees this coming and he's like, no, we are independent Klingons and we do not need no Federation. But just because you don't want to be a part of the Federation doesn't mean that the Federation has to stop existing. Ah, who knows? They'll always be there. They'll keep bringing their root beer to us and being all happy and bubbly and try to bring us into the fold. So I'm guessing we're not going to see a Klingon bird of prey with the bumper sticker coexist. (laughs) I don't think so. That's a shame. It's a true shame. So you said a lot happens in the first 12 minutes of this episode, which is a little surprising for me to hear because I thought the episode could have been a lot shorter. I felt like there was a lot of filler. So what happened in those 12 minutes that you found so substantial? bunch of what we just talked about are some of my notes. Also, the Beacon of Kalos. Uh, we talked about maybe it's being an ancient artifact, and it was confirmed in this episode. And when we talked about last episode, I'd honestly forgotten this little talk, so it was new to me again. Ah, yes. <laughs> so Kalos is a great warrior of myth on the Klingon homeworld, and he was the last person to unite the 24 houses, I believe. Yeah, uh, thousands of years ago, if I recall correctly. Right. And there was an episode of The Next Generation where somebody cloned Kalos and tried to bring him back to reunite the houses again. Yes, and I think they brought him back in Deep Space Nine, if I recall correctly. Oh, I don't remember. That's possible. I could be confusing or conflating a few stories there. There was a lot of Klingon lore in Deep Space Nine. That is true. Um, you know, since Worf was on both shows. Yet. Right. So the, um, I, brought, I mentioned it a few moments ago, but the ship that Tukovma had resurfaced I, I wrote down, it seems to have religious importance. And then all of a sudden, the next line is talks about, um, they mention it's a holy vessel. Uh, Vogue said that. And then Cole, one of the Klingons, who was like, Ugh, we're not going to reunify. That's silly. He's like, you disgraced the ship with outcasts and vermin. And so obviously, this ship is important to the Klingons alone, not just to Kuvma. To Kuvma. Given that Takuvma is an outcast, I'm surprised that one of the 24 houses didn't fight for ownership possession of the beacon to be the one to reunite the 24 houses instead it seems like they all just succumb or fall in line with this nobody klingon who happened to have found the beacon yeah i mean maybe there's a reason for that we're not privy to yet Hmm. but um i'm not sure how often we can use that excuse (laughs) i mean there's just so much star trek we have or discovery we haven't seen yet that's true that's true it's only the second episode but we, you and I do know a lot about Klingons, and it seems like either they're holding something back or it's something of a MacGuffin. Right, right. We'll find out. Hopefully we'll find out. So at what point did we have the other flashback of Michael Burnham's about her as an adult? That was actually before the Beacon of Kalis discussion. That was like the instant after we recapped the last 30 seconds of the last episode, we appear or we go back seven years as Sarek and Burnham beam onto the uh, Shanjo. That's right. And that was Michael's introduction to the captain. And she 
Michael at that point is still in her Vulcan garb and her Vulcan haircut, and she's acting very Vulcan as well. Very much so, and also has a great line. So basically, Sarek just comes in, dumps her, and runs. And as he's turning around, because Burnham's being a little snot, he, he mutters to her, behave, as he gets back onto the transporter pad. It's true, and I can't help but wonder that Sarek is the one being diplomatic, which... I, I granted he's an ambassador. That is his professional full-time job. He has spent his lifetime dedicated to the art of diplomacy. And yet he almost seems more like a parent in that one moment and not the kind of parent that Spock ever had. Oh, absolutely. That's an interesting thing I hadn't thought of. It's like, what does that mean for us? Because Spock just almost seems like, ugh, when dad comes onto the Enterprise. Right. I mean, when we first meet Sarek in Journey to Babel in the original series, Spock is willing to let him die in the name of service. Spock says, I'm too busy as acting captain to give my father a blood transfusion, so he'll just have to die unless Captain Kirk gets better in the meantime and I can step down as acting captain. Yeah. And yet, I don't know, that that seems like a very strained relationship, which we've always known Spock and Sarek had, but Michael and Sarek seem actually relatively close. They do, and he even, at the end of the episode, or midway through the episode, he even comes back and admits a failing of his, as he boosts her self-esteem. Okay, I do want to talk more about that, but... We can get back to that in a minute. Yes, we're going a little bit out of order, and I... So, the first episode ended with a standoff. Not only was the Shenzhou meeting with 24, at least, Klingon ships, but also the captain had her phaser pointed at Michael Burnham, and they end up having Burnham escorted to the brig where she is confined and relieved of duty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then all hell breaks loose. The Klingons start firing, uh, although I guess not immediately because by the time the battle begins, the Shenzhou is not alone. No, we have also another lore-heavy split second, if you're paying attention, as a bunch of Federation ships warp in. At exactly the same moment. Yeah, it's fascinating how this works. But um, they had a number of ships come in that made references to other things. Yes, the one I caught right off the bat was the USS Taplana Hoth, which is the name of the Vulcan science vessel that made First Contact in the movie Star Trek First Contact. Yeah, which is cool. Were there others that I missed? Yeah, we also had the Shran. Oh, the famous Andorian played by Jeffrey Combs on Enterprise. Yes, yes. And we also had the Earhart, who actually has been on Star Trek. Who, who or what is Earhart? Amelia Earhart. Oh, Amelia Earhart. Yes, she was on yes. an episode of Star Trek Voyager. Mm-hmm. And we had the Jaeger, which were likely Tr- Chuck Jaeger. Yes. And we also had the Edison, which could be one of two people in the Star Trek universe. Could be Thomas Edison, the inventor, or it could be uh, Edison from Star Trek uh, Beyond, who was the captain of the Franklin. Oh, you mean, the? wasn't he the villain? He was a villain, but in, that was in that turned into the Beyond of the Kelvin universe. That's right. At the time of discovery, Star Trek Beyond hasn't happened yet. All they know that is he is a Starfleet officer who was lost in line of duty. Mm-hmm. So they might have named a ship after him, not realizing yet that he is a villain. Right. That may never have happened as it right. did. And even if it does happen, it won't impact discovery. This is right. us going off on Star Trek lore tangents. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah, there was a lot going on there then. Uh-huh. That's just the first few minutes. And we, we actually skipped over something that happened in the last, in the last seven year, the seven years ago flashback. Oh, right. Uh, th- that's when she is offered a, pl- a position on the USS Shenzhou, seemingly without going through Starfleet Academy first. Yeah, that was interesting. But there's there seven years ago we didn't see. But something I noticed when the captain is escorting Burnham around 
Burnham is extremely defensive. They're on the turbo lift, and Captain says, I've seen your record. And basically, Burnham's like, well, I've seen yours. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the captain's like, and it's exemplary. She's like, oh, uh, y- yours too. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just she's very defensive on being on this new ship amongst humans again. And it's interesting. I find I find it I find it fascinating. Well, I can imagine that after being away from her own people for the entirety of her life, she is afraid of being judged for not being human enough, and so she goes to the opposite extreme and tries to be more than human, better than human. She's trying to be Vulcan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And especially since she is lacking in confidence and security amongst her own people, Vulcans give her an outlet for those emotions, which is to clamp them down and not express them at all. Which I guess is the opposite of an outlet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so back to uh, the current time. Yeah, the, the big battle. So these 24 uh, houses are going against all these Starfleet oh. vessels. Before the battle. Oh, wait, wait. What's Just more? before the battle. Okay, go We on. finally saw what I alluded to last time, where Takuvma mocks the Federation for their line, we come in peace. Ah, yes. The captain actually used that in her holographic projection yep, to yep. the beacon. He, he, she's talking, and he's like, here it comes, here it comes. <laughs> and it came. Yep. And he he responded to his Klingon allies, we do not. <laughs> or they do not. Excuse me. They do not. Yeah, they have a chip on their shoulder. They are very anti-peace. Yeah, and that's when the battle begins. And I think the change to the phase cannons was amazing. The the phase the special effects. Okay, I really need to go back and rewatch this because I don't know what you're talking about. So, so one of the again internet arguments about phasers has been there would be no beam. You would just you wouldn't even see them. And here they kind of touched up on that. You basically little see little bullets of light. Uh, shoot out of the ships right at launch, and that's all you see of them. But they're obviously hitting. I can't wait. It's hard to describe without seeing it, but you just see like little the flash from the starships, but you don't don't actually see the beams. You don't see it traverse the, the space between the source and the target. Right. I didn't notice that. That must make for not very good television. No, it was it was cool because it was just it was like it was like almost like a cannon, like an actual cannon, like a rifles even on these ships it was really cool i thought it was amazing sounds more like a light show yeah i guess you could if you were watching from a distance that's what it would look like Hmm. okay i was kind of disappointed in the battle because i got accustomed to the sweeping battles of deep space nine which in my opinion had some of the finest aerial combat ever seen in any star trek especially when you have the defiant going up against all these jemhadar ships by the dominion uh-huh, uh-huh. And by comparison, what we saw in Star Trek Discovery, it seemed like there was not a lot of tactical maneuvers. Like, the battle begins with all the ships at a standstill, just firing at each other. And then some of the Starfleet ships try to move a little bit out of the way. And that's pretty much it. There, we that, didn't really see any aggressive or creative tactical combat. There was that, certainly no Picard maneuver. That was uh, another thing people have been talking about online for years. And I think they addressed it interestingly, which I wish we could... There's going to be this upset here I'm going to get to. In Star Trek, battles are typically regarded as almost like a battleship or gunship battles and not fighters, like in Battlestar Galactica, where you have the uh, raptors. Uh, it's something where you're basically just sitting there. All you can really do is sit there and fire from a distance. You can't, aren't as maneuverable. But a lot of other shows have smaller ships that get in there and, like airplanes, fly around. So they get these little fighters. And 
they kind of did that a little bit here, but you did see some combat where it was like fighters and whatever. You did see some of the starships doing those kind of moves, but it was not a primary focus, like in some of the Deep Space Nine battles, especially Deep the Defiant, which, you know, is a really cool effect. But I thought it was, I still, I still find it fascinating and cool and fun to watch. Is it true, though, that these big starships are the equivalent of these big battleships that are not maneuverable? Does maneuverability come into play in outer space? A good question. That's just, it's been one of those things I've been talked about for years, and I can see kind of both arguments because we've seen these starships move like that on on Star Trek, like Deep Space Nine. So I, I can see both viewpoints, but either way, I thought it looked really cool here. I mean, I'm, I suppose there is somebody out there who has a PhD in physics who can definitively answer this. This is not the wrong yes. science. <laughs> there is an answer to whether or not large objects are less maneuverable in a frictionless environment. Right. In the meantime, though, every time I think of the Defiant, I think of it doing a strafing run on a Borg cube, and oh, then yeah. it's adrift in space, and the USS Enterprise just zooms in between it and the cube, and, oh, I love these battles. Yeah, that was a really cool, that was an amazing scene. They also had a great one in the Mirror Universe on Deep Space Nine, where the Defiant that's Smiley built is attacking Emperor Worf's ship and it's it's skirting around bouncing around the the massive massive ship and i was like oh this is so cool you know d space 9 was probably my favorite trek series as far as storytelling goes but it's also a series that i've watched only once through and so i remember like general arcs a lot of times and not the details so i remember that there were mirror universe episodes and who the characters were i don't remember that scene and now you make me want to go back and watch it Oh, yeah, you have to. You definitely have to. At some point in my lifetime, I think I will. <laughs> so the battle doesn't go very well. Uh, Michael Burnham, as we said, has been confined to the brig, and she gets a visitor. Somebody from the bridge who was manning the helm has suffered a blow to the head, and he's trying to make it to sickbay, and he accidentally ends up in the brig instead. And he has such a poignant line. He says, Why are we fighting? We're Starfleet. We're explorers, not warriors. Yeah, it's almost what Picard says in Insurrection. Yeah, I mean, and it is so true and so sad that we do not go to the skies in order for humanity to find new enemies to fight. That is what the Klingons do, but we really do come in peace. We want to see what is out there in the world, and the Klingons want to smack us down. Yeah, Ensign Connor, that's his name, and he has such a... That's a very tough scene. That's a very sad scene, because he comes in there with that concussion. Yeah. He says that amazing line. And then the ship gets hit. Right, and and, Bur- get- and Burnham loses consciousness and when she comes to the entire brig except for her force-fielded cell is just gone. Yeah. That was that was off. <laughs> I mean, this starship apparently it has some structural integrity issues when it gets hit by enemy fire. It has really reliable force fields. That is something that there has been alluded to in every Star Trek, or most Star Treks, but has never been seen to this detail, which I was actually reading a note about. I'm just impressed that those mechanisms didn't fail during the battle. Yeah, I don't know, I have an answer to that. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's while Burnham is trapped in this basically little square cell in the middle of space that she gets another visit from Sarek. Yeah, we actually get to see that during the terrorist attack when she was little... He put some of his Katra into her. I always thought that doing a mind meld with an unconscious or unwilling victim is 
unethical and that a Vulcan should not do it. And to see Sarek do it to a child, uh, that didn't seem cool to me. It may be a... I agree. And it seems like he may have made a life or death situation kind of thing to bring her back. And made a call of a protective parent. You think that Burnham was dying as a result of the Klingon terrorist attack and Sarek brought her back to life by putting some of his Katra in her? It seems very plausible. Hmm. Especially since she was unconscious and he's like, come back, come back. Although this episode didn't really explain what Katra is, did, did it? No, that one is definitely one for the Trekkies. Yeah, so... Katra is what was invented after Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Spoiler alert, Spock dies at the end. And then I guess they decided to bring Spock back. So in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, they said, oh, there is this mystical, psychic element to Vulcans called a Katra. And if before they die, they put it in somebody else, then that soul can be brought back to the Vulcan homeworld and given a proper burial. Due to very specific and unusual circumstances with Spock, they were actually able to put his Katra back into his body and bring him back to life. Yeah. And so Sarek has taken part of his Katra, which I didn't know you could do. It's like a Horcrux or something. <laughs> and just split it up and given part of it to a human named Michael Burnham. Yeah, that was, it's a huge sacrifice, apparently. He says it's a physical toll on the body, which might be allusions to things that we saw later in uh, Next Generation. You know, my mom and I just watched the episode called Sarek last week, and he starts to lose his ability to re restrain his emotions. And I don't know, maybe if he had his full katra, he would not have succumbed to that disease of old age. I don't know. It's possible. Then it also means implications for other characters. We saw... I think T'Pol and and Charles could talk, or Chip Tucker could talk this way on Enterprise. Could they? Yep. Or am I confusing the books? Did he have part of her Katra? At least in the books, they have a romantic connection. Now I'm questioning myself. I'm not sure the books are canon. Oh, no, they're not. That's why I'm, <laughs> that's why I'm questioning myself if well you should. that was on the show or not. Hmm. But, um, but then also Archer had the Katra of Sirach. Oh, that's right. And, but he's long dead already, so... <laughs> right, that was a, that was 100% pure distilled Katra. Yeah. None of this diluted crap. <laughs> but anyway, Sarah doesn't mind meld and basically says, come on, Burnham, you can do it. Which is such a common trope. I mean, I've seen that so often in The Flash and Supergirl, where the protagonist is seemingly down for the count, and then somebody gets on the horn and says... I know you can do this. I believe in you, Barry. You can do it. <laughs> and then they get a second wind, and they win. Yep, yep. And uh, I guess that's what this uh, call was from Sarek. And I liked some of his lines. Like, do you really think that I'm mind-melding with you from a thousand light years away just to say farewell? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were some great, great amusing lines there. Which somebody on Reddit said was not very Vulcan. Actually, this wasn't Reddit. This was a friend of mine who emailed me to say the Vulcans in this show are not acting very Vulcan. You know, that was a common complaint on Enterprise as well. But they worked that into the lore of Enterprise. In season they four, they explained why they were so hot-headed. Yeah. I think Sarek, I, I don't know that he is that far off from what we know Vulcans to be. I think he's a bit far off from what we know Sarek to be. But as a Vulcan, I find him passable. Yeah, oh, same here, totally. And you know what? Maybe he, he had a different relationship with Spock versus his own child versus just a, an adopted child. Right. Maybe with Spock being half-human, Sarek wanted him to take after his father and be Vulcan, whereas with Michael Burnham, she's 100% blooded human. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. 
But I really thought it was interesting the conversation she had in that cell, not just with Sarek, but with the computer. Yeah, that was an in- amusing scene or interesting scene, I thought, having this logic discussion with the computer. Burnham had to convince the computer that there are certain ethical protocols the computer has that allow people to not die and to go places and do things that they should not be allowed to do if not letting them do that would result in their termination. And so Burnham says, look, QED, if this happens, then this happens, then that happens, and I will die, therefore, you must let me out of the break. And the computer has to think about this and decide, yes, you're correct, and therefore I'll let you out under these circumstances. Yeah, it was that was interesting. We never seen actually Kirk kind of does this kind of stuff to the computers all the time. I think there was like six different incidences on TOS where he outlogics computer. Which is strange because I would think that even at this point in Starfleet's evolution, I know this is not next generation era and that they don't have super sophisticated computers, but I would think that still a computer with ethical protocols would have been able to come to that same conclusion without Burnham's help. Yeah, yeah, it may have been just for dramatic fluff. The computer even said, you are not allowed to exit this cell unless you will die. And a second later, it says, if you stay in this cell for more than eight more minutes, you will die. And yet I'm not going to let you out. And Burnham's like, well, I think you should. And the computer's like, "Ah, you're right. (laughs) Maybe it was like, well, if you're not going to die in eight minutes, you can be here another seven minutes and 59 seconds. Right. Maybe circumstances would have changed and the computer would have come to a different conclusion on its own in seven minutes. I don't know. Yeah. But nonetheless, she takes a very brief jaunt through outer space with no protection. Uh Uh-huh. Very similar to the movie Event Horizon, which did not end so well. (laughs) Oh, God, that movie. (laughs) And she makes it and arrives on the bridge with seemingly no worse for the wear. Yeah. I mean, it was a very quick trip, and it's plausible. I, I, I actually, when I was watching it a second time, I was like, I could have sworn she had some battle damage on the second one, too, but nope. And she didn't even close her eyes, did she? Uh, well, I, I think the camera zoomed out, so she may have. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she arrives back on the bridge, and she explains to the captain, you need to not kill Takuma, because at this point there is a ceasefire, a very brief one. And she says, if you kill him, he becomes a martyr. We need to go capture him. And the captain acts like she hasn't said anything and says, how could you do this to me? Yeah, she does seem kind of seem like, oh, I mean, like, Let's go back to what we were talking about before you ran off, or before I put you in the brig. Right. It could almost be that she is blaming Burnham for this battle. Maybe? It doesn't seem like her, though. Burnham didn't do anything to antagonize the Klingons. She wanted to. Yeah, she armed the torpedoes. I mean, if the Klingons were paying attention, they could have noticed that. But, yeah, I don't... That one confused me, too, a little bit. I may be missing something. Maybe something went over my head. I think it was more that the captain was taking it personally because she's like, do you know why I took you on board seven years ago? Because Sarek thought that I could chip away at your, you know, Vulcan shell and here you were and you turned your back on me and whatever. And I I don't get, I really didn't understand that argument because I felt like in the moment where Burnham applied her Vulcan death grip to the captain and tried to commandeer the ship and fire the photon torpedoes at the Klingons, I felt she was at her most human at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so I wrote I wrote something down here. In the heat of that moment, it almost seemed like she was putting the needs of the few uh, uh, ahead of the needs of the many. 
She was trying because she said to the, she said to the captain that she was trying to save a ship and her friends. Do you think that's putting the needs of the few ahead of the many? Who are the many? The Federation. You think that saving the Shenzhou was more important than saving the Federation? It could have been to her at that moment, or in the heat of the moment. I mean, it's it's but the closest thing I can get to rationalization. But that's very irrational. Well, yeah, on the outside looking in, or at the as in. On the outside, looking in, or in a time where we have time to think about it. You mean in hindsight? Yeah, that's a word that people <laughs> would probably use for that. Good one. I just made it up. <laughs> I mean, okay, so Burnham was raised on Vulcan and had a lot of these Vulcan ideals, but all of a sudden she's turning human again, you know, kind of thing. I know. I know we've only seen her for two episodes, but I have never seen a strong influence of her Vulcan upbringing on her. She's always seemed comfortable in her own skin. Yeah, she has. So maybe we're missing something in that in that group, or maybe just me just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. Well, I mean, there are a lot of theories. Who knows? I'm sure as we get to know the character better, we'll get even more flashbacks about her upbringing. Yeah. But before she and the captain can finish their heated debate, the Klingons start using the ceasefire to gather up all their dead. Yes, and we get an opportunity to see the Federation in its earlier days when they don't mind putting a bomb on a body and desecrating it. Do you think there ever would have been a time when Starfleet would not have done that? I don't know. They would have done that in later years. Well, in Voyager, we saw an episode where they pretended to be escaping Voyager on a shuttle, and when the shuttle was tractor-beamed aboard the enemy ship, they exploded it with a bomb. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And then also in Star Trek Into Darkness, they pretended to blow up all of Khan's friends in those sleeper pods by putting bombs in them, or allowing the bombs that were in them to explode. Didn't, but the people weren't there. Correct. And that was still earlier to you. Or earlier in the Federation history? No, that's 10 years after Discovery. Well, yeah, but not... I meant TNG kind of era. I don't know if we would have seen such actions. Mm, I think we would have. Maybe maybe desperate measures call for... Or des desperate situations call for desperate measures. I think putting a bomb like on a live person, we have evidence of Voyager not doing that, where they tried to infect the Borg with Echev's virus. Mm -hmm. But putting a bomb on a dead body, I totally think that's something that they would do. Maybe. Maybe I just saw Westworld too. <laughs> <laughs> I forget. Was it? It was before, however, they put the bomb in the dead body that we also see the death of the admiral. Yes, that was a scene just after the ceasefire. That's the rest right. of the Klingons warp away, and Tukovas is like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk. We're going to come over there. We're going to talk. I'll send my Prepare envoy to receive my envoy." Yeah. <laughs> and then we got to see um, an invisible ship ramming into the Europa. Now, had that ship been invisible the whole time? Apparently, everyone forgot, because no, it was there. It was in combat. or we, we, we saw it hovering there. I don't know if we actually saw it fire or anything. I don't recall at the moment, to be honest. But uh, at some point, it disappeared, and everyone forgot about that. And How no convenient. one seemed to notice that they were talking to an invisible ship. Yeah, that seems strange to me. I think that was an error, or I missed something in two viewings. No, I don't think you missed anything, but it was extremely dramatic, and I don't know that the Klingon ship took any damage from it. Oh no, it almost looked like it was built for ramming it where it did. Right. Even after the Europa intentionally <clears throat> self-destructed, I think the Klingon ship was still no much worse for the wear. Yeah, it was no problem at all. I, the Klingons have very low standards when it comes to who to attack and when, which seems very dishonorable. Yeah, I actually wrote, Takuvma is not very honorable when he rammed with a cloaked ship. Right, seriously. And so I think it's totally fine for Starfleet to be dishonorable by bombing a dead body. Mm -hmm. So this body gets tractor-beamed into the Klingon ship, it explodes in the neck, the ship is adrift, 
and Michael and the captain decide to go over there and try to capture Takuma. And two, several interesting things happen. The first one, chronologically, that I noticed was before they beamed aboard, they already had their guns out and aimed, which I don't think I've ever seen a Starfleet officer do. They always pull their phasers out as soon as they arrive at the transporter destination. I've never seen them arrive there already prepared to fire. I think that was something in one of the movies. I recall seeing something like this before, but I'm drawing a blank on where. But you're right, it's extremely rare. And so they get there and they do fire right away, very similar to when Spock and Kirk went over to the Romulan ship in the 2009 movie. Yeah, maybe Uh, it was there. Maybe that was what it was. It could be. Uh, But now it's Klingons instead of Romulans, and they immediately find who they're looking for, and there are a couple of people who die. First, Takuvma kills the cap. Yes, um, before that, we got to see Michelle Yeoh fight, and that is what she is known for in these movies. She is a martial... I think she's a martial artist. She was in um, The World Is Not Enough. Oh, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Yep, she's been in a number of movies where she got to fight things. One of the Bond movies with uh, Pierce Brosnan. The World Is Not Enough? Yeah. Maybe. But she's got a fighting background, so if we got to see her fight. Was it all that impressive? They do a lot of the current Hollywood thing of just action cuts here, there, 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 there. Yeah. But it's still kind of neat to see her do her element. It's one of the reasons she was there, probably. Yeah. And then, yeah, Takuma stabs her. And actually, I noticed something here that I'm not sure how to justify yet. So so, so the phase pistols in, in the series have the same settings as the uh, movie, the uh, 2009 Kelvin phasers, where it's blue for stun, red for kill. And it was set to kill? Burnham, who was fighting with... What's his name? Voke? Voke, Voke, yeah. She was fighting with him. He's gone. She's trying to find the phaser. She sees the captain and Takuma in battle, and she finds the phaser. It's in blue mode, because that's when they came... That's what they beamed over with in blue, mo- blue mode. So they were stunning everyone. They were not killing anyone. And she grabs... Uh, she finds the phaser. She grabs it. And that split second, that's when the captain is stabbed. And the same split second, she turns it to red to kill and shoots Takuvma. I don't think there would have been enough time to react to him killing her to switch it to kill. I think she was going to switch it to kill, even though she said we were coming over here to capture. She totally ruined the mission, which was the objective that she had defined. Uh-huh. And I could see one saying she did it in revenge for killing her friend. My captain, my friend. However, the, the speed at which she switched from stun to kill, I question if she was going to ever stun him. Why would she have lied about her objective of capturing Takuma? I don't know yet. I don't know. I Revenge. I mean, she's, she's had a tough childhood because of these kids. And it could be me and they're me taking something that the editors just did too quickly. But something in that just went, oh my God, what just happened here? I don't know. It was very emotional of her, and I thought it was very stupid. It's not why she was there. And I even when you see your captain being murdered, I don't think that your first reaction is to kill the person who did it. I think her Vulcan training, her restraint, and seven years in Starfleet, I think that split second was enough for her to stick to the mission and not go out of her way to switch the phaser. And I can't believe she did that. I'm very disappointed. I did not see that coming. And that's what makes me wonder if it was intentional or she got lost in the moment again for her youth. I just don't know. And I think we'll find out in the coming episodes. 
So she's brought back to the Shenzhou, and they retreat to be an emissary of the victory that the Klingons won that day, if you can call it that. As I predicted in the first episode, she is court-martialed and stripped of her rank. And remind me, was she actually, like, imprisoned or just kicked out? She, uh, the sentence was imprisonment for life. Why was she imprisoned? Just because she... I don't know. I've, that, I don't see that she committed a crime that is worthy of a life se- sentence. You know, we don't know much about sentencing in the Federation or even their penal system other than Tom Paris was in one. So I don't know. I don't know it seems like an excessive It sentence. seems like harsh. Yeah, yeah, because she didn't kill a single person. Well, yeah, she did. To Kuvma. <laughs> she yeah. didn't kill a Federation citizen. I don't think she's being sentenced to life imprisonment because she killed a Klingon. No, no, I didn't, that didn't seem to come up at all. I don't know. And still, at the end of the second episode, we still have not seen the USS Discovery. True, true. Yeah. And it's clear that Captain uh, Malfoy is going to do something huh. to get her out. Yeah, Jason Isaacs has been in the opening credits for both episodes. He has not yet shown up. Michelle Yeoh was listed as a special guest. I'm guessing her name will be yeah. replaced with somebody else's from now on. I, that or just gone. Yeah, th- when I saw that in the first episode, my heart dropped. I didn't want to bring it up last episode because I knew it was going to happen. And the last podcast episode, but when I saw that in the, when I watched the first episode for the first time, it just said special guest or special or star, you know, whatever it said. And I'm like, oh no, she's not going to be here long. So I have two questions for you as we wrap up this mm-hmm. podcast. The first being, who were you the most sad to see die in this episode? I was Captain Georgia. Yeah, why is that? I just love Michelle Yao, and I thought she was a great character here. I wish I could have seen more of her, and maybe we will with flashbacks. Right, but. I, I, she seemed like an awesome person. I wish I could have gotten to know her better. I was also sad to see just the death for Ensign Connor because it was so sad. Like he was just this kid who went into space to explore, and he gets sucked up, sucked up out into space, or blown out into space. Excuse me. That's the death that bothered me the most because he was the most optimistic of all the characters we saw, in my opinion. I mean, like he and. I don't know, Allison Hannigan, Willow from Buffy, who are helming the con of this ship. That was Allison and... Hannigan? No. <laughs> okay. I was like, she seemed awfully young, but I didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the two of them just seemed so scared about everything that was happening and so hopeful when things went right. And especially once he had that concussion and he just seemed so confused by things that were not going well. And I think that's probably how I would be without a concussion. I'm like, why are we doing this? We're scientists. Boom, you're dead. Yeah. I feel like he was symbolic of the hope that humanity goes into space with, and that hope died with him. Yeah. Yeah. The other question I have is, this episode that we just finished watching, Battle of the Binary Stars, not very creatively named, was mm-hmm. the first episode available exclusively on CBS All Access. Uh-huh. Is is this enough to get people to subscribe? I hope so. I thought it was amazing. I've seen a number of commenters who are not on the Star Trek Reddits <laughs> <laughs> say it was so much fun. They really enjoyed it. I don't know. I liked the first episode, the Vulcan Hello, more. Yeah? Oh, here, I th- I like this one more. Part of it is that I've been watching TNG from the beginning with my mom, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. and I- Discovery is dramatically different from TNG. And my mom wants to watch Discovery. She wants to see what is this new Star Trek all about. And I can't help but think that she's going to hate it. Oh, no. Yeah, it is very much a 
product of modern television. Yeah, I mean, one of her favorite TNG episodes of all time was The Inner Light. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. And we don't, we're not going to see anything like that on Discovery anytime soon. I don't think so either. Yeah. However, there has been murmurs, have been talk about a Mirror Universe episode somehow, so... Oh, that'd be interesting. Wow. I didn't think there was any record of it by the time Kirk encountered it. Yeah, but I mean, Cochran mentioned cyborgs in his some of his later speeches and people dismissed, so hey. <laughs> That's true. So maybe Burnham will encounter it and nobody will believe her. That, or it could be how Enterprise did it and the actual Enterprise crew didn't go. It was just an episode series. Yeah, there was no crossover. Yeah. That was amazing. It, it is very different. And I, you know, another thing, this seems silly. Maybe this has more about my mom than Star Trek, but she would lose interest as soon as she saw that it had subtitles. Really? Yeah. Although you made an interesting discovery about the subtitles. Yeah, not where in the countries where CBS realized that Netflix is how people want to view this stuff, they actually have Klingon subtitles. So they have subtitled the entire show in Klingon. Apparently. Why? <laughs> I know it's a lot of work, but Netflix does these little things that are amusing and wonderful. And I don't know if it's the entire episodes. I have not seen anyone comment on that or who could actually read it. But I think it's a really cool little addition. No, I read this comic book called Knights of the Dinner Table, and one of the characters has a GPS that speaks in Klingon. <laughs> but it not all the words translate. For example, there's no Klingon word for U-turn because it's too similar to retreat. <laughs> and so the Klingon GPS says, make three left turns. That's awesome. <laughs> and so I can't help but wonder that there must be other vocabulary the humans on Starfleet are using that don't translate to Klingon. GPS. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, anything else we want to mention about the Battle of the Binary Stars? I love the episode. I think there's a lot to unpack there. I highly suggest you watch it, a, anybody, not just you, watch it a second time. I did see at the end of the episode there was a brief teaser of the next I episode. I quickly stopped. Yeah, I watched a little bit of it and then I stopped. I am very interested to see how they're going to get Burnham from being in prison to being a continuing character because I guess she's going to be a commander again. I think that's the position she holds for the majority of the series. I don't know how she's going to get there from where she is now. Unless it's unless it's like how Janeway pulled Paris out of the penal... Yeah, you're the best pilot out there. We need you. Um, uh, maybe it's going to be a... We are low on resources because Starfleet's getting its butt kicked. We need all the help we can get. I'm Commander Malfoy. Come to <laughs> my ship. And it does seem like Burnham holds herself responsible for the war happening. Yeah. Even if the captain didn't, I don't know. Yeah, she she basically said that this is my fault. Yeah. And my, my captain and my friend is dead because of it. Me. And and I am the enemy. We are at war and I am the enemy. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our recap for the season one, episode two, Discovery, The Battle of the Binary Stars. We are looking forward to the third episode, which airs this coming Sunday. And this is going to be us getting back onto a weekly schedule for Transporter Lock. Yes, so I hope you enjoyed hearing like three times the canon Brie <laughs> that you normally would. And I hope you enjoy a brief break from hearing my voice, Brie. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst, totally. I knew it. <laughs> well, Brie, live long and prosper. Live long and prosper, Ken. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. <laughs>